This is a podcast from meow.net. M-I-A-A-W dot net. Meow! Welcome to Genuine Inquiry, a monthly series of audio essays, each of which interrogates a topic close to our hearts. Hello and welcome. My name's Owen Kelly and today I'm here with Ken Walpole and we're going to be looking at a question that's interested both of us for a number of years. Why do we always need experiments in living to see what works and what doesn't work in how people live and work together? And what can we learn from this? So Ken, can you start us off? Why do you, why do you think we need experiments in living? How did, how, how did this start for you? Um, well, I suppose it's to do with my family history. Um, like many fam, um, families, from, uh, we, I was born and grew up for the first few years in the East End of London. But um, after the war, there was a great out-migration into, the kind of, into Essex, but both into rural Essex, but also into coastal Essex. And we went uh, unusually to a small island called Canvey Island, which actually is self-made a self-built island built by Dutch engineers in the 18th century and now housed an enormous oil refinery. But um, the housing accommodation on the island was largely self-built um, by people who moved to live there. They used prefabricated um, uh, kits, basically, to put up small wooden bungalows on stilts Um in, and the roads were unmade and there was no main sewage, um, there was mains water. But it was kind of like a sort of wild west. And um, and for a child, this was actually tremendously exciting territory. I actually know Canvey Island to some extent because my mother's parents, so my grandparents, lived in Southend-on-Sea. And we used to go down from, from Merseyside every summer for two weeks. And we'd always make a trip to Canvey Island. This was during the 60s. My memory of it, yes, is the oil refinery. And also it had a small funfair. It did have a small funfair. But also, apart from this kind of rather rough, um, but, you know, fairly stoical working population and working community, it was also regarded still by the people in the East End as, as being uh, healthy uh, because it was next to the sea. And there was a train station quite near, um, which would just cross over a bridge and be on the island, Benfleet. And it became the site of a number of kind of, not alternative, but retreats set up by either philanthropists or militant radicals in the East End where they could send people either to recuperate from poor working conditions uh, and so on. So, I mean, the two, one I do have a very strong memory of, was called um, the Hotel Ozonia. The Ozonia comes from, obviously, ozone. And and that was designed, actually, by a Swedenborgian architect. But it was a strange confection of kind of half Swiss cottage, half castle, and it was teetotal, and it had about... 15 bedrooms in it and each bedroom was decorated with a mural showing the perils of drink with kind of demons rushing around with pitchforks or smashing bottles and the other one was the called the girls bungalow and that was set up by a woman trade unionist in london for the girls the young women who worked at the Brian may factory 
a notorious Brighton May factory where they could go and retreat. So kind of already, Canvey was a place where there was kind of eccentricity. Not, not I don't want to use the word cultish, but people who had similar opinions. It might be teetotalism, it might be anti-vivisexual, but there was a kind of, it's where people went who didn't particularly want other people to sneer at them or frown upon them because of their views. Teetotalism was a was an important part of uh, a lot of these communities, wasn't it? And one of my other memories from childhood was Port Sunlight, because where we lived in Birkenhead was a 15-minute bus ride to Port Sunlight. In summer, we would go and uh, wander around there and the Lady Leverhulme Art Gallery and so on. And that was also part of that movement of philanthropic workers' paradises and again, it was teetotal. It had an art gallery. It had wonderful parkland around. I mean, compared to other 19th century housing in Birkenhead. Yet at the same time, it had a pub only 300 metres from the border, as it were. So people used to have to sneak out of Port Sunlight to go and get a pint of beer. So there was, a, there was that element of Canvey. And then we moved off of Canvey Island just before the terrible floods there, which killed 57 people on the island in one night on 1953 to um, Hadley, which is very close by, a piece of downland overlooking the Thames estuary, where in 1896 the Salvation Army had created a very large rural settlement, agricultural settlement, where the poor uh, and ill uh, men of the East End of London, whose lives had been ravaged either by work or drink, could go and start a new life there. And as children, young people, we wandered around that settlement. Um, it was public access. Uh, and again, the, the, it, one, I kind of became fascinated by this idea that there were these kind of enclaves of different ways of living uh, within the mainstream society. I wouldn't have used those words at the age of 10, but um, that's what I felt. So I've just carried on. I've always had this interest in the notion that sometimes it's very difficult to hold unfashionable beliefs. Uh, and one way in which you can resolve that is to join with others who share the same unfashionable beliefs and kind of and live together. Now, as you know, it doesn't always work, and I'm interested in why it doesn't work, but I'm also still keen that we need these experiments and living simply to find out what does work and doesn't, what doesn't work. But the the experiments themselves happen at different, uh, I don't know what to say, different levels or different um, sizes, don't they? So on one hand, there are, as you say, there have been and there still is a history of small encampments, which I suppose during the 60s and 70s we'd see as a rise in hippie communes, which is 20 or 30 people pursuing, as you say, a similar set of social, cultural, political aims and trying to build a community often from scratch. So that's one size of these experiments. But then on the other hand, there were the size I've also alluded to, places like Port Sunlight, where there was an attempt to create an entire little village or town that would combine living and working 
and recreation. And that, of course, came back again in the 20th century with the move towards model cities, garden cities. Exactly. Yes. And I think that that you've raised an interesting distinction there because they're the ones that are kind of the utopian visions that are had by the people with power and the money to kind of build them. Because often these, like Port Sunlight, they're very, uh, they're they're designed with forethought um, and there's money going into them. Uh, compared with those that are commonly, or the American phrase is the elective communities, where people with probably very little, but other than their shared religious or political or spiritual ideas, try to kind of improvise a new settlement um, with with very little resources. And I think there's you you, ha- you need different criteria for evaluating the, those two very. They're, they're the the different ends of a continuum that runs from the kind of the small communal household up to the new town, um, which may have a population of 100,000 people, but who are living within someone else's ideal of what it is to live the good life. Right. Do you have any personal experience of garden cities or new towns? I don't know. I mean, as I said, Canvey was fascinating because it was, um, an, as you might call, once call it, an improvised kind of settlement. Everything was negotiated. You know, someone would paint the walls if someone else did the plumbing. And there was a lot of kind of mutual aid and barter. I suppose I, then I trained to be a teacher. And, to, and again, one, I, was, I think I was very lucky in the teacher training college I went to it was very, it was, um, a lot of the staff were quite idealistic about teaching as vocation and the idea that somehow the classroom itself could be, could be a retreat from the harsh world and that one could make or manufacture, uh, even on a day, just on a daily basis or an occasional basis, uh, another world. And I think that again brings in, I don't want to jump ahead of the, the argument, but there's a kind of anarchist phrase or acronym TAS, the temporary autonomous zone, which I suppose goes back to what you were talking about, the hippie experience, the hippie festival. I mean, it may, may last one afternoon, it may last five days. But there's a lot, again, there's a long history of the festival or the carnival, uh, very disruptive in history, where the people take to the streets and for a while they... They make the rules. They occupy the space. They kind of, they're in control. It's the world turned upside down, even though, however briefly. So there's a whole, there's a whole panoply of ways of thinking about what it is to live differently within mainstream society. Are there experiments that you think have been particularly and notably successful that we should take note of? Well, funny enough, I am. I, I only last week I was visited a, a, a Christian community um, on the coast of Essex, quite quite a remote place called the Arthona Community. I'm not a Christian, by the way, but I've been. I'm very friendly with the people there, and you don't have to be a Christian to go there. But it was set up in 1945 um, to bring English or British. Christians and German Christians together after the war in a spirit of 
reconciliation. And they occupied just a group of old army huts on the coast that had been left behind. And they're still there, you know, um, 70-odd years later. But um, it's not a settlement in the, in the sense that it's a retreat. It, it has a few full-time staff who are all Christians. But anybody can go there if they're in need of some kind of um, refreshment of their spirits or they're having a hard time and they just want to get away for a few days. You can, nobody can stay there longer than three weeks. But they've been going, you know, for 70-odd years. And they have in the process what originally started out solely as a kind of spiritual community or retreat, they have grown to this notion that they they have got to look after the land. So all their buildings are either teepees or they've just built a new dormitory block with mud excavated from the site itself. They are entirely off-grid. They generate their own electricity. They recycle their water. So I think that's a great one. It's, um, it's very impressive, I must say. Because it, it seems to me that I've been getting more and more interested in alternative methods of, methods of living and places of living. And in part, this is because it seems to me almost all social and cultural questions in the end come down to a matter of how you live and where you live and who you live with. And any attempts to address cultural questions without addressing those issues seem to me in the end to produce what you were saying earlier, places where people are forced to live out their lives in somebody else's version of utopia. So, and, and, and the result of that is that usually it's an experiment which serves to determine what the people envisaging utopia have in fact forgotten about. Yes, I mean, I, I, I really agree with that. I, I, I do agree with that because um, I suppose, it, you know, as a young man, very idealistic, I did become quite involved in kind of socialist politics. But I was always struck by the mismatch sometimes between um, the people espousing these extremely radical beliefs and, in fact, their private wealth and private, um, and private lifestyles uh, seem to be... Uh, at odds with that and also i mean it, it, i i suppose for me a key question um i ask of anybody who kind of says they want to build a better life is to say well can you boil an egg yet and a lot of them can't um <laughs> <laughs> sorry i'm laughing at my joke but it's, uh, <laughs> I, it, 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 there's a card in my local post office um a greetings card which has that joke on it it shows a a whole parade of very important men in suits standing, you know, with regalia and the, the slogan is not one of them can boil an egg. But I, I'm, I'm interested in the sheer lack of practical skills or the life skills that so many people who want to live differently uh, feel they, they, can, uh, they can do without or are not necessarily. Um, somehow it will work out in the end. But um it, this then you know makes me uh, gravitate towards people who are very practical which is why i suppose for me uh, uh when i was at the teachers training college with my wife we were very involved in setting up an adventure playground great fun 
Um, but it was practical and we had great fun and, and the children, you know, helped build the playground. And it seemed to me that was a utopia. Um, it was a utopia at the weekends. And it was a utopia after schools. Didn't take many resources, but it was another way of being in the world. Right. Yes. Recently, I read the book you sent me. Um, you've written a book for a short book for the Swedenborg Society, have you not? Which looks at, uh, it's called New Jerusalem, the Good City and the Good Society. And it looks at alternative methods of living, both in terms of uh, self-constructed methods, but also more particularly in terms of uh, the work of Ebenezer Howard and those people who built garden cities based on his, his book, which was what, 1902, called yeah. uh, Garden Cities of Tomorrow. So that became a kind of blueprint, didn't it, in Britain at least, and also to some extent internationally, for devising living spaces that were supposed to ameliorate the effects of capitalism. Is that correct? That is correct. And it was extremely influential, I may say. But I think what so many people forget that it wasn't just an aesthetic project, i.e. that um, you know, to build the beautiful world with little thatched cottages and half-timbered houses with wide pavements and head, lovely hedgerows and tree planting. Um, what people forget about Letchworth, the, the original Newtown, was its, its economic basis in that the land was purchased in its entirety by a trust and the trust built the houses but anybody buying a house or they could rent a house but you could also buy your house that house came with a covenant to the to the degree to which you, you had to comply with the standards of the design you couldn't knock down walls or he excavate hedges or put a car car parking space in front take away your front garden, put in car parking space. So firstly, they had a way of, I mean, this was, some might say, quite authoritarian, that the, the, the look and the design of the whole estate um, was is still exactly as it was 120 years ago. But the other thing is that um, as the land developed and more houses were built, the land acquired greater, greater value. And that value was actually retained by the trust in order to pay for the common services, for the libraries, for the transport system, and so on. And that's the thing that went missing in other experiments. So that, uh, and I always think about this in regard to my own, you know, experience and probably your experience too, that um, we, we came to Hackney 50 uh, odd years ago when it was quite poor. There was a lot of community activity cinema, uh, alternative cinemas were created, bookshops and so on. Um, gradually, the property values rose. Eventually, the people who actually kind of helped make this place a much more livable place themselves got priced out. And the gain in wealth, the land and property, that accrues the land and property was cap captured by private individuals or private companies. So that, uh, and this was an idea actually not originally from openings are how, but from the American, uh, Henry George, Progress and Poverty. Are you saying then, Kent, 
Because I I do not have personal experience of this. But are you saying that Letchworth has maintained its status or or its its characteristics? Most English cities have gone through an awful decline in public amenities over the last 30 to 40 years, arguably since Thatcher, with libraries closing or reducing their services, uh, sw- local swimming pools disappearing, etc. Is it the case that Letchworth, because of its public trust, has avoided that? It has to a large extent, yes. Um, I mean, obviously, some things have radically changed. Um, as you know, the original, there was not to be a pub, or the pub was the pub with no beer. I can't remember what it was called, um, but uh, there is now a pub there. And the, I mean, there were several factories there, which are now um, either redundant or have been turned into workshops. And, of course, there is now... A, a rather larger range of brand stores rather than the original ones. But essentially, uh, someone coming from 1910 on their horse and cart, if they wanted, would actually recognise all of the streets. They would recognise all the hedges and the trees. So, you know, it would be an extremely familiar landscape to them. It would has not changed right. in 20 years. But you, I think you said something very, very important there in terms of what we're discussing, which is that when the factories closed down, they were replaced by workshops. But what the, I presume that the workshops did not employ the same people as the factories in the same numbers. So what this did, despite the efforts of the trust running Letchworth, was to break the bond between work, leisure, living and community. Because isn't it the case that Letchworth, like the 19th century uh, model towns like Port Sunlight and Bourneville, were designed to have work, leisure, communal activity in the same, in the same geographical area? That's right. And, and, and that link, as you, you know, as you say, was broken. And, and Letchworth Duff has a railway station next to it and, and more and more people until recently. And I think this is something we might want to discuss until recently. And the recent thing is COVID. Uh, people would jump on the train and go to London or go to Cambridge. But post-COVID, we are seeing very, very different patterns of live work. And that's another thing we could talk about. I mean, this notion of live work, I suspect. I mean, Hackney, a lot of the former industrial premises are now a mixture of housing and workshop. So I suppose in a way it's a bit like that thing. If you wait long enough, history will come back to where you were when you started. So we are actually living, I think, in a very a time when the, the reconfiguration of work, play and home is up in the air again. Yeah, are you familiar with the the writings of Wendell Berry? I am. Uh, well, um, I am. Uh, I have to say, largely as kind of, um, I suppose, a s- spiritual. I, I, lo- I love his sensibility. Uh, I, that's right. That, that's all I can say. Yeah, the respect for yeah, his respect for the world. Yeah. Well, I would I would share that. But one of the things that I found most interesting about Wendell Berry is his refusal to see personal identity as separate from uh, the communal and his refusal to see anything as separate from land. And, and I was thinking about this because I was reading recently 
uh, an essay of his called In Distrust of Movements. And he's talking about land use. And he argues that the proper business of a human economy is to make one whole thing of ourselves and this world. And so one of the aspects that he doesn't differentiate is the difference between economy and spirituality. He argues that money does not bring forth food, and neither does the technology of the food system. Food comes from nature and from the work of people. And if the supply of food is to be continuous for a long time, then people must work in harmony with nature. And that, he says, means that people must find the right answers to a lot of hard practical questions. And those questions are questions about how people live and how, and how people experiment with their, with their forms of living, which I think takes us back to the question we're discussing. It does. And I think that will go, go back very much to Henry George, uh, the, the land question. I mean, as you know, well, in, in the UK, I mean, the land is overwhelmingly in the hands of a small minority who controlled it. And the cost of land, for example, prohibits any kind of experimentation in London because um, you, you, can't, you, you can't simply, if it's a, it, it not only prohibits experimentation, it's increasingly prohibiting any kind of social amenity. So, for example, now, if you want to build a library in London, the local authority can't afford it. The only way they can do it and they do it quite often, is to build a library but put um, uh, 16 apartments above it so that the developer pays the library, mm. uh, but, the, but, the, um, but you, you're, you're always in, in the kind of abeyance to what the developer... You, you're an, social amenities are now an afterthought or a possible kind of a gift, in not, no longer in the hands of a democratic polity but they're a gift, if so wished, by a private developer or private capitalism. Does that mean then that, in your view, that there are some places like London, presumably like many capital cities and other large cities, where these kind of experiments are now simply impossible and therefore we need to look for smaller places to live? Is that what you're suggesting? Well, it is true because the fact is that in you know when... Um, we arrived in Hackney in 1969. Um, Hackney was in the doldrums, and there were tens. Uh, well, there were there were certainly thousands of empty houses. I mean, people had just got up and left. Uh, a lot of them were council houses that people just, you know, because of crime, because of unemployment, uh, they wanted a better life. So they moved, and, and, and local authorities owned hundreds, uh, tens of thousands of empty houses. So you had a lot of squatting, and some of those squats turn into, you know, squatted shops might become a bookshop or a yoga centre or a playgroup or whatever. And some of those squatted houses would become communes for a while. And that allowed that kind of experimentation. But once you, when you've got a, um, but once there's a demand for housing and the housing is in the in the hands of a private market, then all those uh, social amenities or social opportunities, so to speak, simply get squeezed out. I mean, only the very rich now can live in in large parts of London, and only 
a very ridiculously expensive or multinational companies can afford to pay shop rents. So all the small repair shops or small food shops or cafes or um, just go to the wall or record shops or bookshops, they cannot no longer afford the rent. So it's not a diverse economy anymore. One of the things Wendell Berry points out around these issues is that in the end, one of our major problems is that we think we've got a lot of problems when in fact, if you look at it slightly differently, you realise all of these problems are aspects of one problem, which is that our system of living isn't fit for purpose. I'd like, I could counter that with a, and I, I don't know, I've got, I've got to check, but I was a very good friend of the anarchist Colin Ward. And I'm sure on several occasions that I have had, I heard Colin say, by the way, he died in 2010, um, that 80% of what we want is actually already here. Um, you know, most of us luckily do have shelter, we do have food, um, we do have transport, we do have work that pays. Uh, why this immense dissatisfaction? Um, and I think, you know, if you accept that, and, and most people do trust other people, and most people do help other people. Uh, and if anybody's in trouble we're on the street, um, you know, or someone falls and breaks their leg, or an old lady falls over, people rush to help. I mean, there's so much of what we would uh, think of as being the kind of culture and the morality of, of the great good society is actually already here. It's just there are parts we have, there are things that are actually stopping it being fulfilled, if it could be fulfilled. And that does bring me back to one thing in the in the New Jerusalem book, um, book which is based on uh, a wonderful book about living in communes by Tobias Jones. Um, and he lived in six different communes, three political, three religious, or three, uh, yeah, three religious, three political. And he found all of them kind of very difficult. The one kind of experiment, utopian experiment, that he thought very successful, strangely, was a, a very large, empty vicarage in the southwest of England where the, the retired vicar just let anybody come and go if in times of need. And this is a bit like a phoner. So people could come, you know, they might be unemployed or, or alcoholic or they might have been made homeless or their marriage might have broken up. They could come for just so long enough as they needed to kind of get back on their feet on the ground. And as long as they obeyed the rules within while they were there, which was kind of no drink, no drugs, and do your share of the washing up and make your bed uh, and help cook, that was fine. And so this notion that a utopia has to stay, this, once you've set it up, you've got to preserve it for the rest of eternity is a, a crazy idea that where everything needs to be remade all the time and re, re-engineered and self-corrected. You know, we need self-correcting mechanisms or, so that things don't get out of hand. I would totally agree with that. And I think, yes, one of the ideas that's wrong with the idea of utopia, it's not even necessarily the philanthropists who built Letchworth and Welling Garden City and then the earlier ones, Bournemouth, Bourneville or whatever. It's not that they were necessarily wrong. It's just that yeah. there was a stasis built into them. And when people move there, 
they didn't get the chance to say, oh, we would rather like it to be like this because it had already been decided. And like a, like a kind of uh, simplistic view of heaven, it, it, all the arrangements had been made and your job was to fit in with them. And I think that that is in, an inevitable catastrophe waiting to happen because people will refuse to not have ideas. Oh, that's right. And I think what you see in kind of fairly successful neighbourhoods or parts of the city, and I think Hackney, where I live, is one of, you know, there's an endless kind of remaking of, of, of the environment, of the fabric of the environment. You know, nobody's trying to keep it still. I mean, it, this is compared. Now, here we are on contesting kind of views because when we arrived in Hackney, I think 80% of housing in Hackney was municipal housing. And um, it was very good quality, and the rents were very reasonable. And and generally, it was fairly well looked after. But um, over time, the jobs went, and people began to move out. Other people moved in, and then, of course, came the right to buy, which was a disastrous thing, because a lot of people bought the flats they lived in and promptly cashed in the money and left. And then the whole thing became slightly out of control and there was no control. But now there seems to be some kind of ecology around new and old. So I think the wholly new and the wholly old is not a a, a workable kind of mix for um, any kind of society. There has to be this constant renewal, which is why, excuse me, why... uh, I think, you know, one of Colin's favourite work, Colin Wall's favourite words, an anarchist, was the word repair. I mean, everything has to be repaired. And we have to, life is a constant mm-hmm. process of repairing. You repair today what you broke yesterday, and then tomorrow something else gets broke. But you carry on, you do it, and it, it's fine, you know. But then taking that view, which I think I totally agree with, we then do find a position where... Some places, like you were explaining about the property prices in central London, some places have achieved a state a stasis in which repair is no longer possible. That's right, because as you know, a lot of the properties are now are, are permanently left empty and deliberately left empty because they are they are you know they are bank vaults. I mean, they're just they're, they just they just rise in value higher than if you put your money into a bank and earn two percent interest, you can buy block of flats and get 20 to 10 percent interest a year and and it's better not to put people into these flats because they might um they might wear them out yes they mess them up um so they can stay pristine for a decade or more and you make a lot of money but that's not what house building housing was originally meant for it wasn't meant to be a bank vault um they weren't meant to be bank vaults in the sky they were meant to be homes for people Yes, indeed. And so we do. We then come back to the, the question that within limits, people can repair, communities can repair, and I think that's as things should be. But the, it, those limits are maybe the, what Wendell Berry would describe as the single problem that's facing us all. It's the one that people who are interested in the commons, people who are fighting for creative commons, people who are interested in land ownership, it all comes back to the fact that if you ring fence things, if you put up barriers 
and force people into situations where repair isn't possible, then we have societies in which the only possibility of advance is through explosion. Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I think it is very interesting. There's something you raised at the beginning, I mean, particularly in relation to Wendell Berry, that, I mean, this, um, this attachment to the land is, is extremely powerful. Uh, and, and most, most, I would say, uh, experiments in living in Britain in the last 250 years have been back to the land experiments. They're either people want to go back to the land because they can't stand the squalor of the city or because they want uh, to live with their, their f- fellows or their comrades or their like-minded people. And the only way they can do that where land is cheaper is to go out into more marginal areas of the countryside, which is why Essex was a great, has been a great and still is a great place for various experiments in living because although it's quite close to London, a lot of it is pretty inaccessible. I mean, there aren't any train lines out there. And also that it's not agriculturally very good, very productive land. So back to the land, it was, it was a paradox that back to the land became still a, a slogan of someone like George Lansbury, who was the leader of a popular council, which is the most intensely, densely populated working class area of London in the East End in the 1920s, 1930s, <clears throat> wanted to go, everybody to go back to the land, which was a bit kind of, silly because they had actually managed to create working communities even though there was a lot of poverty uh, mostly and then the work was pretty hard around in the docks or on the river or in the big factories like Brighton and May but nevertheless they had managed to create what is now highly admired sort of in retrospect you know this classic working class culture um, in the city they didn't need to go back to the land but the land question is still, it's underneath so many kind of ec- economic problems, as you say, that if, you know, if there were, land nationalisation has been on the, le- the radical agenda for 200 years, but it's not, never going to happen. But there are now a few community land trusts in London where a trust or some uh, benevolent, benevolent person gives enough money or a whole piece of land, maybe a redundant hospital site, to be converted into homes and workshops where they can have a, a really jon- a strong, vibrant mix of low rents and workshops and better rents. But uh, the thing about community land trusts, as, as, as was the thing about Letchworth, you can't just sell your house to an outsider who then sells it again for a large profit. Uh, you sell it back to the... Uh, you, you have to sell it with all these covenants attached. Uh, and, and in the community land trust I know in the East End of London, you, ha- you, you can only buy into this community if you've either lived or worked in the, in the area for two to four years. And when you come to sell, you will get a market price for it, but you have to sell it back to the trust. But that seems to, that seems to me an entirely fair situation because... I think many people have been encouraged to confuse freedom with the ability to purchase without any exactly. sense of consequence. And I think if one is going to enable communities to grow and one is going to nurture communities, then like the original commoners in the 12th century, 
you have to differentiate between something being freely available to anybody and being available to members of a commons, members of a community. And if you don't safeguard the community in that sense, if you don't safeguard the commons, then you end up in a position where the person with the most money comes in and takes the commons away from you. But you can see why um, it's very easy to kind of um, build a kind of a, a polemical argument against the idea that, oh, you know, you think you've owned your own house, but you've got all these um, restrictive covenants on it. You can't sell it to anybody you like. You can't paint your front door blue. Uh, you can't knock all the walls down and build and turn it into a kind of gym palace, or you can't that's always been that's always a tension of of communities as you say it's it's between uh, complete free choice to do whatever you like irrespective of how it's going to upset the people around you with no responsibility to others um or the freedom just to the so-called freedom to just do whatever you like and that's dynamic and that's kind of entrepreneurial but um it trashes everybody else Yes, and I think, I think in that respect, I think anybody, all both of us, and all the people that, with whom we would normally associate, I think, would argue in favour of of community. And I think, I think you, the, the notion, anybody beyond who's older than the age of about nine or ten, who, who fails to notice that your one's actions have consequences on other people that need to be taken into account. Anybody that fails to notice that has had a very strange view of life develop. But sometimes you can't immediately see the consequences. Um, you know, the, you, know true, you, yes. you may happen to, you know, uh, unknowingly, I don't know, buy a house of someone not knowing that actually they were forced to sell that house, you know, uh, for reasons of poverty. I mean... It, Yes, I mean, not all, uh, and certainly people with um, uh, owning, for example, care homes, but all the money is, in, you know, kept restored in um, an offshore island, and they're, they're not involved in. I mean, they're, they're basically they have the power and the money, but they're not there on the day-to-day basis, and they might be. I don't think they are probably oblivious of the consequences of their. Di- voracious demands on rents and in return on the capital interest. I mean, I was reading, this is a shocking, it was a, um, I think at, at the moment now in Britain, the average bed in a care home for an elderly person has to pay £145 a week in interest alone on the money borrowed to keep the company going. Basically, care homes have just become rent farms for, um, well, that's another mm-hmm story i think there's a there's a there's a argument that many elements operate in that way or have come to operate in that way not necessarily because that's how people naturally want them but because that's how you can monetize them monetization just like with land ownership monetization is easily done when you isolate people but let us leave it there for the moment, Ken, and let us come back and continue this conversation at a later date, but not that much Good. later, I hope. Okay. Well, thanks very much. That was very interesting. I'll, 
I think, well, you, you know, as you get older, you sometimes have to fumble for these um, these words and these ideas. <laughs> I think that's okay. That's allowed. <laughs> now that you've heard the podcast, please go to the website. There you'll find much more details about topics talked about, links to references, and much more. You can find the website at meow.net. That's M-I-A-A-W dot net. See you there.